Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunday School. It's good to see all of you. Uh, before we jump in and get started with our lesson this morning, uh, let's go before God in a time of prayer and ask for his, his blessing and his mercy. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is timeless and eternal. Thank you that you passed it down generation after generation to us. As we open it up, as we start to uh, think again about um, the Mosaic Covenant, we ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would guide the meditations of our hearts, the thoughts of our minds, that everything we think and say and do might be shaped by who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So... We're talking about covenant theology, um, and we've been talking about covenant theology for a long, long time, and we'll probably talk about it for a long, long time more. Um, but let's keep in mind <clears throat> the big picture, right? The big picture that I've tried to uh, hammer home every week is that all of covenant theology is pointing us to Jesus, um, which is not surprising, right? All of the Bible talks about Jesus, um, but... I've been framing it as every time that a new covenant shows up, it's answering a question. Um, All the way back in Genesis 3.15, right, the question that was posed was, well, what now? What happens after the fall? Adam fails. He breaks the law. They are cast out of the garden. The question is, so what now? Is there any path of salvation? And Genesis 3.15 answers the question, right? uh, The seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent, and he shall bruise his heel. But then, Cain kills Abel, right? And wickedness increases on the earth. So there's now threats to God's promises. There's the inward threat of of strife within God's people, right? There's the threat of the serpent's line trying to extinguish and swallow up the line of the, uh, the woman. And then there's the threat of God's justice, right? What if God's judgment... Uh, hits earth before the promised seed is able to come. So the Noahic question, the Noahic covenant answers those questions. Um, God says, I will preserve the world. Right? He will not judge the world with water again, meaning he'll postpone judgment. We're not afraid that God is going to judge the world before the seed comes. But he also says, now there's going to be justice. Right? By, if man sheds blood, by man shall his blood be shed. So the Noahic covenant institutes protection. Right? It institutes justice. It institutes um, government so that in a fallen world, there can be a way for the promised seed to still continue. Right? God is, is providing the, the boundaries. He's creating the space for grace to, to work in, um, which is something that we talked about with the Noahic Covenant. So it answers those questions. Um, it answers those threats to God's promises. But then we ask the question, so from whom is the promised seed going to come? Right? Where is he going to come from? Who's, who is he going to be born of? And then we get the Abrahamic covenant, where Moses or God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a seed. Right? I'm going to give you a, a, a son, and from him, many people will be born. Your offspring will be like the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. Um, but it's a specific son. Right? Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And God said, I will make my covenant with Isaac. And with his offspring. So now we know that the promised seed is going to come from Abraham and it's going to come from Isaac. Um, and then we start to ask the question, well, what is the promised seed going to even do? Right? What does it mean that he's going to crush the head of the serpent? What does it mean that his heel is going to be bruised? What's he going to do for us? Um, and what kind of person is he going to be? 
And so that's the question that the Mosaic Covenant answers. The Mosaic Covenant answers the question, what is the promise he going to do, and what kind of person is he going to be? And we've had a couple of, of answers to that question already that we've talked about in the last six weeks. Um, does anyone remember? What are the things that the promise seed are going to do, and what kind of person is he going to be? What do you think? What do you remember? Okay, we know that. But more specifically, how does the Mosaic Covenant teach us what he's going to do? He's going to keep the law perfectly. Right, because the Mosaic Covenant shows us that Israel is incapable of keeping the law. They need someone who can keep the law on their behalf. What else does the Mosaic Covenant teach us about the promised seed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he will be the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. Um, we've talked a lot about how Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats can't atone for sin. The sacrificial system was meant to, to point Israel to the perfect sacrifice, to a sacrifice that you don't have to offer year after year after year for every single sin as soon as you commit it, but one for all. Jonathan? So... I was just listening to you about sacrifice. That's good. And, you know, and last week I remembered us talking about how, you know, the ceremonial law, how the altar must be made of stones that you gathered off the ground and, and that your tools never touched. You must fit them together without tools, things like that. Mm-hmm. Why does it prohibit them from using tools? That's a specific question. That's probably, we probably won't talk about that right now. But maybe later you and I can talk about that. Um, is there anything else that the promised seed is going to do that the Mosaic Covenant teaches us? What is, what is Moses, Elaine? Mediator. Yeah, he's going to be a mediator. Right? Moses teaches us a lot about the promised seed is going to do because Moses is not technically the mediator of the covenant. And more so than that, he's not a very good one. <laughs> like, even when he does step in for Israel, he is still an impulsive, stubborn man. He's a human, right? He's broken and sinful like everybody else. We need a mediator who's perfect because we've talked about what a mediator does, right? A mediator is someone who acts on behalf of someone else. He's the one that, upon whom the responsibilities of the covenant fall. If the responsibilities of the covenant fall on Moses, right, Israel's doomed, because Moses is sinful. And if the responsibilities of the covenant fall on Israel, which it did, Israel's doomed because they can't fulfill the covenant. So Israel was doomed. Right. Unless there was a perfect mediator. Unless there's someone who can be perfect, who can keep the law perfectly, and keep the law perfectly on their behalf. Right? That's what a mediator does. He is the one who keeps the law for someone else. So that when the promised seed shows up, Jesus, when he keeps the law, it's as if everyone he is representing keeps the law. And we've talked about how not only does he keep the law, but he's the one who bears the curse for our sin. He's the one who takes upon himself all of the curses. And yet, he's the one who earned all the blessings. So he earns all the blessings, gives us the blessings, and takes the curse upon himself. He gives us his righteousness and takes our sin. So now, let's add 
another dimension to the work of the promised seed. So we know that this promised seed, when he comes, he's going to keep the law perfectly. He's going to fulfill the Mosaic covenant and the law. He's going to be our mediator. Um, But let's add another dimension to what he's going to do. And this dimension we're going to call um, the office. Because the Mosaic covenant has a strong what's the word, Um, emphasis on the offices, right, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But before we start talking about the Mosaic Covenant and the offices, let's talk big picture. All right, what is is an office when it comes to the Bible and and the church? What's a church office? It's a position of authority. Mm -hmm. Position of authority, right? Jonathan? Similar to a pastor, it's a place, like Pastor Brad, you, it's a place where you teach, it's a place where you instruct, it's a place where you discipline. Uh-huh. Okay, so it's a position of authority and it's a position with specific duties, right? Pastors teach, elders lead, deacons love. Any other things to add to what a church office is? Who picks them? Okay. Yeah. So, do you apply for it? Right. Put in your resume. Say, well, I've I've got lots of experience, and here's why I should be an officer. No. Not really. <laughs> so, yeah. It's who gives the authority, right? Where does the authority come from? What's this? God. Yeah. Me- meaning, we're not a democracy. Right? It is not government by the consent of the governed. It is God says, you, I'm going to pick my officers and they're going to lead the church. And the church recognizes that and calls them right, and ordains them. But ultimately, the authority comes from God. So a church officer is someone who has been given a position of authority within the church by the Lord. Why do they exist? Why, why do we need Steve? What's so great about Steve? Right. What, what's the point of a church office? Yeah. Because if, if the church the church needs leadership, the, you can't have a herd of sheep with no shepherd, and the officers are like under shepherds. Yeah. Of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I love how you say that they're under shepherds of Jesus because that's exactly right. They are the officers are the representatives of the Lord. They are the ones who represent the Lord's authority, the Lord's love, and the Lord's um, word to His people. Right? They are the ones who are working out Christ's ministry on earth. So Christ works through them. Right? And to use the, the analogy of a body, if the church is a body of Christ, the officers are the, the arms and the, and the hands and the feet. They are the ones who carry out the ministry of Christ uh, to his church. So because of that, right, they reflect Christ. They are the ones who, if you want to know what, what the Lord says... Right? You go to a pastor. If you want to know what the Lord's authority means or you want to have um, accountability, right? you go to an elder. If you want to see how the Lord loves, you go to a deacon. Every office represents a certain aspect of the Lord. Um, but ultimately, right, as you said, Michelle, they're under shepherds, meaning that Christ is the head of the church. He is the ultimate authority, and all the officers are subordinate authorities. Um, 
So when did God institute the first office? Elaine? Adam? Okay. What kind of responsibilities did Adam have? Uh huh. Yeah, I mean, go back to Genesis, right? Adam was called to work the garden, to guard the garden, to keep the garden. Um, he was called to have dominion. Right, that's an authority language, um, which tells us that God is divesting some of his authority. He is giving authority to Adam. And Adam is going to be God's representative on earth. Right? He is going to be, he's going to work out God's ministry on earth. That sounds a lot like an office, right? But he's also going to do a couple other things, right? He is going to be fruitful and multiply. He's going to um, have, uh, subdue the earth, have dominion over it, um, but ultimately, I think we see best what Adam's office was when it comes into contact with, uh, with the serpent. Because the serpent, when he comes into the garden, what does the serpent do? What kinds of things does the serpent say? What's that? He deceives. Yeah, but how does he deceive? What does he challenge? He challenges God's authority. What else does he challenge? God's motives. Uh huh. Joy? He challenges God's veracity. He says, Did he really say? Yeah. Yeah. Did God really say? He challenges God's word. He challenges God's authority. And he challenges God's love. Because he says, right, he, he, said, he tells Eve, well, God doesn't want you to be like him. And if you eat of this tree, you'll be like him. But God doesn't want that. Right? Because God is selfish, is the implication. He's challenging God's love. And he challenges God's um, word. He says, well, God lied. Right? How can you trust God if he's a liar? Um, and he challenges God's authority. Right? You will be like God. You won't have to submit to God. You won't have to be ruled by God. You will be like him, meaning you can rule yourself. Maybe you can even have power over God. Those, that challenges God's authority. So in all three ways, the serpent comes in and he challenges God's truth, God's authority, and God's love. And how was Adam supposed to respond? What do you think Adam should have done? Matthew? What's that? Defended God. Yeah. Yeah. Defended God. Say, well, that's a lie. <laughs> That's not true. God is truth, and you aren't. What else should he have done? Crushed his head. Crushed his head. Yeah. He should have, he should have killed that serpent. Right? As soon as the serpent started spouting lies, he just said, I have to subdue that because that is challenging God. Right? That is the crux of Adam's office was to represent God's truth. God's authority and God's love uh, to, to the world. And he failed. Right? He bought the lie. He rejected God's authority and rebelled. And he rejected God's love and said, well, yeah, God is selfish. 
But then Genesis 3.15 happens, right? And we're already starting to anticipate someone who's going to do, fulfill the office that Adam failed. Because God says in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. In other, way, in other words, the promised seed is going to fulfill the office that Adam failed. He's going to respond to the serpent how Adam should have responded. Um, but it will come at a cost. Right? The serpent shall crush or bruise his heel. So we're already starting to learn about the promised seed and his office and what that means. Um, so now let's jump to the Mosaic Covenant. And let's talk about the Mosaic Covenant. And let's talk about Moses. Right? Did Moses have an office? Remember, an office is, is God-given authority. Did Moses have that? Yeah. Yeah, when did Moses, when was Moses commissioned or ordained by God? The burning bush, right. Where God told Moses, um, you're to go, right, go to Egypt. And what were the responsibilities of Moses' office? What was Moses supposed to do? Yeah, speak God's word. What else? Yeah, lead God's people out of Egypt, right? He's supposed to show God's love to them in that way, right? Because God is rescuing, and Moses was called to rescue Israel, right? To pull them out of Egypt. And there's one more thing. What was, what was Moses supposed to do if, if Pharaoh didn't listen to God's word? Yeah, yeah. With so many of the plagues, right, sometimes God sends the plague himself, but often he'll use Moses as, as, a, as a tool for his plagues. And the signs that Moses was given in chapter 4 of Exodus, right, to the, the, um, the staff that was turned into a serpent, the Nile turned to blood, all these things are signs of God's authority. Right, so Moses was given God's word to take the Pharaoh. He was sent to go bring Israel out of Egypt, and he was told to, to show God's authority and power to Pharaoh if Pharaoh refused. So in a lot of ways, right, Moses' office is a lot like Adam's office. Right, he's reflecting God's truth. He's reflecting God's love. He's reflecting God's authority. Um, so what we, what we would say, right, is that this is kind of like a threefold office that Moses was bearing and that Adam were, was bearing um, because there's three different directions that they're reflecting God through the word, through, um, through authority, and through love and mercy. However, with the Mosaic Covenant, after Moses dies, this threefold office is split into thirds um, with each one having specific roles within the Mosaic Covenant. Anyone know what those three offices of the Mosaic Covenant are? Prophet, priest, and king. So now we have three offices. So let's go through each office in the context of the Mosaic Covenant and let's see how they apply and what they teach us about the promised seed. Because remember, that's, that's our big picture. Just keeping in mind, what is Jesus going to do? So let's start with prophets. What did prophets do? Reveal the Word of God. Reveal the Word of God. Yeah. Is there a difference between a biblical understanding of a prophet and maybe a modern understanding of what a prophet does? What a modern... When you say the word prophet to, to someone, 
in the world? What would they think? Foretelling the future. Yeah. Yeah, they're someone with a crystal ball, right? And they're saying, oh, on January 18th, you're going to eat a Snickers bar. Like, okay, (laughs) thanks for that. Um, But that's not quite what the Bible says a prophet is, right? A prophet is not necessarily a a future teller. They're a a word teller. They are the ones who speak God's word. Um, Who did they speak the word of God to? God's people. God's people, okay. In what sense? Um, the, there, were, there were times of warning when the prophets would say, you're not living the way that God commanded you to live. You are going in danger of receiving judgment for that. And, and in some cases, even uh, in more of a future-telling sense, say you're going to experience captivity because of your sin. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what Dave just said is essentially one one aspect of the prophet's role was to, to speak God's word to convict his people. Right? Israel oftentimes finds themselves in sin. And the prophets are sent by God to call Israel out of their sin and to return to him and telling them, if you don't return to God, here's what will happen, right? If you don't return to God, you're going to go into exile. Um, So there's a warning and a conviction aspect. Um, Are there any other aspects of, of the words that prophets speak? Do they only speak conviction? Do they only call people out for sin? Charlie? Absolutely. Um, one way to think of it is, right, they'll come and they'll, they'll say to Israel, you're in sin, here's what's going to happen if you don't come back. But if you do come back to the Lord, what you're going to find is God is love. God is merciful. God is gracious. He is quick to forgive sin. Um, in other words, they remind Israel of the promises. Right? They, they are sent to convict Israel of their sin, but they're also sent to comfort Israel. To remind them of who God is, to remind them of God's promises, to remind them that they they have a God who loves them, and to believe in Him. Not simply to just do what's right, but to love God, to believe in Him, to believe His promises. Um, so comfort and conviction are, are a couple aspects of how the prophets uh, speak God's word. Um, do they only speak to Israel as a whole? They speak of God's salvation for the Gentiles also. Okay. I'm talking more like when, when a prophet is sent, is he sent to speak to all of Israel? Does he, is he sometimes sent to an individual? Um, and is he always sent? Yes. Okay. Example is Nineveh, Job, uh, not Job, 
Jonah. Jonah went, sorry. Jonah went to Nineveh because God sent him there. Mm -hmm. He went reluctantly, but he went there. And Nineveh was not, uh, not an Israelite nation or, or, or city. It was a pagan city. And Jonah speak to them as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, here's... Here's how we can think of it, is that a prophet is always called by God to be a prophet. Um, but they don't always speak to Israel as a collective. Sometimes they speak to individuals. And sometimes individuals come to them. Right? And sometimes collectively Israel comes to the prophets. Um, for instance, there's Naaman, uh, the, the, is he Syrian or Assyrian? Um, I forget exactly what he was, but he was a, uh, a general, right? And he heard that there was a, uh, a prophet in Israel who could heal him of his leprosy. So he went to the prophet, right? Because he wanted healing. He wanted God's ministry of healing. There are other times where people would seek out um, a prophet in Israel to find out what, what does God say? What, what's God's will? Um, things like that, right? If you think about pastors today, sometimes they preach in the pulpit, Right? But sometimes you call them up because you're like, here's this thing that I'm struggling with. What does God say about this? Um, because you want to know what God's word says. You want to know what God thinks. So you call a pastor. Prophets were similar. right? Sometimes they were sent to, to proclaim a message. And sometimes they were, they were there for Israel to come to them to find out what God's word said. What does God say about this? What is God's wisdom? Um, what is God's will? Um, so we've already mentioned this in the talking about conviction and comfort, but one aspect of the, of the Mosaic Covenant prophets, we've talked about how they, they go and they convict Israel of their sin, right? That is, is that legal or relational? Is that an act of, sorry. Is that a distinction? Maybe. A legal relationship is still a relationship. Okay. I mean, it, obviously it's founded on the covenant. That's legal, but the covenant had to do with their adoption, which is familial. Yeah, no, that's a good, good way to put it. They were covenant prophets, meaning they were sent to convict Israel of their covenant failures. In other words, you could think of the Old Testament prophets as a lawyer, right? One of God's lawyers. Israel has broken the covenant, which they do all the time, and God sends one of his lawyers and saying and, and issues them, you know, here's your I forget what it is, your your my intent to sue or whatever. Um, you've broken the terms of the covenant. Here are the consequences if you continue to do this. These lawyers were sent to to convict Israel that you have broken the legal boundaries of the covenant. And according to the covenant, right, here are the consequences that should incur. However, right, there's always that offer of grace and mercy. There's always the sense where God is also saying, you are my children and you are in rebellion. I think it's um, Isaiah 1-2. Right? The prophet Isaiah says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Right, so there's, there's both a, a relational and a legal aspect to what the prophets are doing. There's legal because they're executing the covenant terms. But there's relational because 
as we talked about with marriage, right? Marriage is a covenant relationship. There's a legal aspect, but it's, it's the boundaries that help build up and strengthen the relationship that has existed before marriage. Um, similar with, with God and the covenant in that the covenant provides boundaries for the relationship, but there's, he, his relationship to them is like as a father to a child or as a, as a husband to a wife. So God will call Israel and saying, you are children that have rebelled against me. You are adulterous wives who have left me for other gods. Um, that's relational. But it's also legal because God is saying, I have witnessed your sin. I am standing in the witness box testifying against you that you have done this. Um, turn away from your sin and return to me. Is there a difference in how prophets speak concerning Israel and how prophets speak concerning the nations? Meaning the nations outside of Israel, so Syria, Syria, Babylon, Egypt. Is there a difference in how the prophets speak or how they're sent? In other words, how many prophets do you know were sent to other nations other than Israel? I think you could probably do a very specific number. One. Jonah. As far as I know, Brett's giving me a look. Was Nahum sent, though? Did he go to Babylon? Did he go to Nineveh? Okay. Right. Well, I'm making a... a I'm trying to think of and make the point that even when they were speaking to other nations, they were writing in Israel and speaking to Israelites. I think Jonah, and maybe I'm wrong, and I, and I could be, but I think Jonah is the only one who actually went to another country and proclaimed God's word in that country. I think every other time that prophets, even when they speak to other nations, they're doing it in Israel. And I think there's a reason for that. Because God's word is found in Israel. God's word is given to his people. Even though it, it, it's, it's to everybody, and it affects everybody, it is still to God's people. And I think part of the reason was because Israel needed that comfort. Israel needed to be reminded that God knows what the other nations are doing. Right? They are, just because they're outside the boundaries of Israel doesn't mean that God can't see them and can't do anything about their sin and their wickedness and especially how they're treating Israel. Right? Often the prophets are saying to Syria and Assyria and, and all these other nations, you have afflicted my people. You have committed atrocities. You are um, prideful and oppressive. And that's a comfort to Israel because they're reminded that God knows what the nations do. And they won't get away unpunished. It's not in vain that you follow God. John, you have your hand up? Yeah. So, how can you talk to some, how can you talk to somebody who isn't within a courtroom? And that's what you look What do you mean? You said that oftentimes the prophets talk to other nations in Israel. Mm-hmm. 
It means that God is what God is saying to the other nations has as much to do with his own people as it does the nations. That he's speaking to his people about other nations. Um, and that's supposed to be a comfort for Israel. That God is saying to them, right, I will deal with your enemies. I will deal with those who oppress you. I will deal with the wicked. Um, so when we come to Jesus, right, Jesus is within Israel. He is the word of God who is being proclaimed um, mostly to the Israelites, right? He's like the Old Testament prophets. Um, and he comes and what, does, what is the message that Jesus proclaims? You can think of Mark 1 or Matthew 1 or Luke it's 3. The first words of Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Mark... Yeah, the first words of Jesus in Mark 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Right, that's the word that Jesus comes. Repent and believe. Turn away from your sins and believe the gospel. Right, conviction, you need to repent and comfort. Believe the gospel. So Jesus is, is acting like a prophet because he is a prophet. In fact, he is the prophet. Hebrews 1 says, in, in many different ways and through many different people, God used to speak. Now, he speaks to us through his son. Right? The Mosaic prophets were all little examples of the Jesus. The Jesus? Of Jesus, who is to come as the prophet. As the word of God. So as the prophets reflect God's word to his people, Jesus is the perfect word, the perfect reflection of what God says. And so Jesus says, right, I don't come to do my will, but the will of my Father in heaven. If you want to know who God is, you come through me. If you want to know God's will, you come through me. If you want to know what God says, you come through me. Nowhere else. So was there... Is there anything unique about how Jesus reflects God's word besides that, as opposed to the prophets? How does Jesus reflect God's word? He is the word. He is the word. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> I don't know in terms of what you're asking, but he's a lot more. He's the true authentic thing instead of just a passed on word. Yeah, he's the true authentic thing instead of the passed on word. Um, let, me, let me ask a different question that will get at what I'm trying to get at. How did the prophets find out what they were to say? God told them. How did God tell them? Somehow. Mm-hmm. Usually in specific ways. <laughs> okay. Ben? Dreams. Dreams. Visions. Angels. Yeah, kind of when the prophets were told what to say, it was through dreams and visions and mediators and, and kind of other ways that you would come to know God's word that are kind of vague and fuzzy. How does Jesus know what to say? 
He's the, he's the direct. There's no intermediary. There's no fuzziness. Right? Dreams can be interpreted. They have to be. Visions are symbolic and kind of goofy sometimes. Right? You read Ezekiel and you're like, I have no idea what he's talking about half the time. Um, but Jesus, there's no visions, there's no dreams. He is the word. So everything that he says is a direct communication from God to his people. It's, there's no vagueness, even though sometimes Jesus does parables. Right? But there isn't any of the dreams and visions and intermediaries. He is just speaking the straight word of God. He's the source. He's the source. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and to put it even more clearly, right? the prophets were getting their words to speak from Jesus, from the Son of God. Like they were receiving from the Son of God. They were receiving from the word what to say. Now you don't need prophets because you have the prophet. You have the word himself who is speaking to you. So that when we read the Bible, right, this is the word of our Lord. This is Jesus' words to you. We can't neglect it. Right? We can't say we don't need this. Because this is what God has said to us. This is what is, called, what is supposed to shape us. And that everything that we think and everything that we're supposed to believe is shaped by his word. It's shaped by what Jesus has said. Whether it's through prophets or whether it's things that he said himself. Um, Deuteronomy puts it like this. Um, God is talking to Moses, and he's telling Moses, well, one day you're going to die, but I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, Moses, one who has seen me face to face. Because the prophets in, in the Mosaic Covenant were, right, they received through dreams and through visions. They weren't face to face the same way that Moses was face to face with God. Moses received God's word face to face, and so does Jesus, because he is the word of God. Um, so the Mosaic prophets teach us a lot about the promise seed and about Jesus, the prophet. Um, are there any questions or comments or concerns? Sorry, I just, I've just been hearing Solo cry the whole time, and I'm like, half of me is like, I hope he's okay. Any questions, comments, or tomatoes you want to throw? Huh? Let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll get ready for worship. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us, that you reveal yourself through your Son. We thank you, Lord, that you have uh, not held back anything that we need to know, but you have spoken to us clearly through your Son in many different ways. And we thank you for all of your word. Thank you that you shape us by it. As we come before you to worship, we pray that you would lead us, that your spirit would be upon us, and that everything that we say, everything that we sing, everything that we think, and everything that we believe and feel today might be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.